All right, thanks guys. Good morning, everybody. My name is Jerry, one of the teaching pastors here at Northwest, and it's my joy to be here with you and to welcome you here this morning. Uh, I know we've got many visitors here. A special welcome to you guys. Thanks for uh, coming out with us. Um, invite you to turn in your copy of scriptures or on your handheld device to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. That's where we're going to be spending all of our time here on this Palm Sunday. Uh, it's going to be important to paint a little picture of a backdrop for you uh, as we enter into this Holy Week, the final week of Jesus' life. And it was most likely Saturday night uh, that where we want to start. And um, it was a, a situation where Jesus was invited to a dinner that was being put on in his honor. And it was at a city called Bethany, which was about two miles away from Jerusalem. And you'll notice throughout the account of Holy Week, Jesus goes back there several times. This was a place of refuge for him. I don't know if you've got that certain one friend uh, here in town or a certain neighbor or somebody that you really connect with where it's that, that kind of home where you just love to go over and hang out and spend time and have a meal and you feel safe there. And you feel like that's somebody that you can really be yourself around. Well, you almost get that picture that here at the house of Simon the leper where they were putting on this dinner in Jesus' honor, that's the kind of place it was for him. Mary Magdalene was there, whom Jesus had healed. Um, uh, Lazarus was there as well, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, only perhaps even a few days before that. So just imagine, here's Jesus, a big dinner being put on, uh, in his honor, making his favorite things, and these various people sitting around the table whom Jesus has healed. Imagine the stories that were shared that night. Right? For Simon the leper, uh, hey man, I'm glad that you've got all of your uh, digits at this point. Can you pass over that, you know, dish of whatever it is, right? And for Lazarus, hey man, you know, you look a little bit better than last time I saw you. <laughs> He was dead for four days, people. Right? But he's sitting around the table with these people that had meant so much to him, whom he had changed their life. And here they are in these moments of intimacy and sharing before something huge is about ready to happen. It's almost the calm before the storm. For my wife and I, and maybe for some of you, what it reminded me of is the rehearsal dinner before the next day's wedding. Right? Because you're there at the rehearsal dinner with the people that you've invited to be in your wedding party. Relatives and sisters and brothers and people that are closest. And your parents and your best friends. And it's kind of a smaller mix of people. And you're sharing stories and sharing laughter and sharing food together. Before what's going to be the biggest day of your life. And in that day, there's all kinds of other people there. Of course, you love them. You invited them. Some of them got maybe the obligatory invitation. You know what I mean? Crazy uncles and aunts and people that would be mad if you didn't invite them. And, you know, you got all these people there and there's lights and there's cameras and, and, and there's flashbulbs and there's stress. And it, it's just busy and crazy. But the night before is the one to take advantage of. And that's kind of the feel that we get here. 
The next day there was going to be all kinds of flurry of activity and spotlights and everything else. But here on Saturday night is where it begins. And so after the meal, if you want to follow uh, in the account and take it down to read later, it's in John chapter 12. I believe after the meal, Mary Magdalene comes down and pours this incredibly expensive ointment perfume on Jesus' feet. And it says the fragrance filled up the whole entire room. It was an, an incredible act of worship in this high and holy moment. Not just because Mary wanted to say, I give my all to you, the most valuable thing I pour out at your feet. But also unknowingly was prophesying that the very next week he would need that burial perfume as he was going to be in the grave. And so it's against this backdrop that we understand the seriousness of what would happen the next day. Our key thought here for this morning as we're going to dive into the narrative here about uh, Palm Sunday is this. The early part of Jesus' final week could be described in two words. Peace and passion. Peace and passion. Those are the two words that I want you to remember as you walk out and later on this afternoon and later on this week. And we're going to unpack each one of them. Let's start with the first one, with the whole idea of peace. Let's go ahead and read the account in Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 38. It says this, And when he had said all of these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, to the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you. Where you are entering, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You can just stop right there. I want to talk about this word peace as the first element in this Holy Week that Jesus displayed and that Jesus could be defined as. As we mentioned, uh, the culture was ripe and revolution was in the air. There was distress, there was distrust in the city of Jerusalem. The city had been occupied by the Romans. They were cruel. They were mean. They were disrespectful. And there were many that were inviting Jesus in as their king of peace, saying he is going to be the one, he is the Messiah, to finally overthrow this Roman government and bring us back to what the city Jerusalem means, a city of peace. You'll notice that he was riding in on a donkey. And a donkey traditionally 
has been um, representative of peace and peaceful times. As you think about a donkey, they're not wild, they're not vicious. You know, a horse, on the other hand, is meant to uh, carry along the idea of battle in a warrior. But you don't see donkeys running and flexing all of their muscles with their manes flowing in the wind, right? No, they're calm. And they're just trudging along. A little stubborn at times, perhaps. But they're exemplified by being calm. Shy almost. And in scripture, that's representative of peace. The people that lived in Jerusalem and that were welcoming him in recognized that, you know what? This is going to be the Messiah, the one to bring us this peace. The book of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which was written hundreds of years earlier, says this. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. This is it. The time is ripe. We're going to finally have peace. You can even see it in the chants of what all the people were saying. They were saying, peace in heaven and glory in the highest in verse 38. All the multitudes were screaming out peace. I want to share an interesting and curious detail of this. That we need to recognize as we invite Jesus in to our lives as the king of peace. And that's how about the instruction that Jesus gives to two of the disciples. Hey guys, I want you to go ahead and I want you to find a colt, uh, a, a donkey, a young donkey that has never been ridden before. You're going to see it tied up and I want you to untie it and I want you to bring it on down. If anybody asks you, why are you doing that? I want you to share with them that the master needs it. He goes into incredible detail with something. Is Jesus concerned about donkeys and about animals being tied up? I want to share with you this morning that Jesus is intricately concerned in every detail of your life, no matter how minute it may seem. As I was thinking this through, I remember when I had an experience that I felt like God was really speaking to me this last summer. My wife had arranged for a trip for me to go out to Colorado. Um, I love fly fishing. Fly fishing and steak are my two love languages. All right? I could survive on those two things for the rest of my life outside of family and God and all those other way more important things, right? But she decided, hey, I know what Jerry loves, and so I'm going to go out to Colorado, and I'm gonna, we're going to spend a few days just enjoying nature. And so we hired a guide one day, and that was great. And, and my wife was like, what do you want to do the next day? I'm like, uh, <laughs> I'd like to go fly fishing again if I can. That's why we're here, honey. You can go again. I'll just stay here at the lodge. So I went out for eight hours completely on my own, right in the mountains in all of the beauty. And I'm out there, and it's just me and God. And he was there even with me, even, even in the solitude, even in these minute, seemingly trivial activities. And I'm out there and I'm sneaking up on this beautiful river and I'm looking at all the deep holes and I'm trying all these different flies to try and get some trout on the line. And I can remember just worshiping the whole entire time because the mountain ranges in the background. It was a beautiful day and I was catching tons of fish. And it was incredible. 
But I can almost remember God impressing upon my heart as I was quieting myself in talking to him and begging with him to let me catch one of his beautiful creations. And it's almost as if God said to me, Jerry, you know what? You are a trout. And Satan is you. And I'm like, come again now? No, you are like a trout. You're the one hiding down there and you're enjoying your little family and enjoying your day-to-day stuff and you're just existing and not thinking about anything. And in life, the enemy is like you. Because he's crouching down in the brush and he's like getting on his knees and he's seeing that and he's flipping that fly to look absolutely as, as real as possible as it floats down just perfectly in hopes that you're going to come out for you, from your existence and see that and think that it's real and go up and grab it. And I'm like, well, this kind of takes the fun out of fishing, doesn't it now? But God, what about all the catch and release side of it? That's where the illustration breaks down, right? No, but it's almost like God was saying, yeah, you know what, the enemy? For you being a pastor especially, he's, he's looking at the habitat, he's looking at what's going on, and he knows what's going what's gonna to stir up your heart, and he's going to do everything he can to throw out a counterfeit to you. And you know what? The enemy doesn't even want these tiny little fish that will go after anything. Oh, no. He wants, he wants to get the bigger ones, maybe perhaps that are a little bit more prominent, perhaps maybe in a spotlight because of what God has allowed me and other people like me to do up on the stage, to be sharing his word and to be up here set up somehow is like we, we have some understanding and here's what God does and here's what scripture means. Those type of big fish, the enemy is out to fool you and to fillet you. And it was in those, that quiet moment, that mundane moment, that nobody else around moment, that God was there in those details and he was speaking to me and I was hearing him. Because God is sovereign and he's concerned about the details and he's there in those moments. And so you picture that and now you put that in context with these disciples. What? You want a donkey? Wait, it's going to be where? It's going to be tied up? What, what should we say? What? And they're listening and he shares and it's mundane and it's ordinary. But they go out and sure enough it happens. Hey, the owner comes down. Hey, what are you doing? Why are you untying my donkey? It's never even been ridden. It's a young donkey. What do you think you're doing? And they said, oh, the master said that we needs it. He needs it. And so there... We didn't even get to see the grand picture, as one person put it. When you see the grand picture, as one pastor said, perhaps you might see a rude God. If you're the one that owns a donkey, you might see a rude God. Why are you taking this? It's mine. And it's almost as if Jesus was saying, I'm not taking your colt. I'm actually taking your cross. I'm not taking just your donkey. I'm actually taking your death. If only you could see the much grander picture rather than just the small thing, you would understand that when the master wants to untie and unravel and take something, it's for a much deeper purpose than what you would think. Sometimes getting that God of peace in our lives brings a whole lot of inconvenience Maybe lately you've been feeling like your life is unraveling. Maybe it's being untied because the master 
needs it for something that you cannot see. So there he is. It says they set Jesus on the donkey. And he's riding in. It says they're waving palm branches. Palm branches are also representative of peace. Because in, the, in that realm, when a military would win a victory and conquer another city, or somehow they would win the battle as the generals would come back, they would wave palm branches. So it means victory, but it also means now there's no more war. Peace is upon us. There's an element of Jesus that brings that in here on Palm Sunday. We get the picture of that. Second one is also equally important. And that's the idea of passion. The idea of passion. Passion by definition means agony. Tormented. It's your emotions and it's your mind and it's your physical body all wrapped up together at the gut level of desire. Right? And maybe you've feel that way and as far as like passionately in love with someone and my heart just burns and yearns with passion for that person that's certainly part of it but maybe for some of you you're passionate about sports maybe you're passionate about NASCAR maybe you're passionate about Farmville or Clash of Clans maybe you're passionate about the NCAA tournament amen Right, and you see that in your response, in your reaction when things don't go your way. You're stirred up. Well, Jesus for us in the early part of this week was a picture of passion. Let's skip down and, and see what we're talking about. Chapter 19, skip down to verse 41. So after all this, after the peace and glory to God in the highest and the waving of the palm branches, right after that, we see this unfold, verse 41. And when he, that's Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Jesus was seeing this city of Jerusalem as he was coming down the Mount of Olives. He looked over at the temple and it says he wept over the city. Why was Jesus crying? It wasn't because... Oh man, this is my final week of agony. I know what's going to happen to me. I know I'm going to be tortured. I know I'm going to be beaten. I know my father is going to turn his back on me as I take on the sins of the world on the cross. But that's not why he was crying. In the Garden of Gethsemane, later on, oh yeah, that's why he was moved. That's clear. But this one is something different. This is a passion that Jesus had for the lost. A passion for people that were apart from God. We see other hints in some pretty incredible passages of scripture of this heartbeat, this passion that Jesus had for the lost. Matthew chapter 23 verse 37. It says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. So here in Jesus you see this element of pursuit, this element of love, this element of imitation, almost like a jilted lover. Or like a father of a prodigal, rebellious child that says, oh, how I long for you to come back. I'm inviting you back. My doors are open. My heart is open. If you would just come to me. 
Jesus uses that illustration of a bird protecting her chicks under her wing. He says, "That's man, I'm, I'm here for you. But you just refuse to see it and you refuse to come to me. Another passage in scripture, Matthew 9, verse 36, carries along the idea that says Jesus had compassion on the crowds because he saw that they were harassed and confused and bothered like sheep without a shepherd. Everybody's going their different way. Nobody's stepping up. Nobody's being a leader. Nobody knows what's going on. And Jesus said he was moved by this. He's looking at them and he sees how confused they are, how they're chasing after the wrong things, getting in dangerous situations. And he says they're like sheep without a shepherd. And that's the way God looks at people who are apart from him. He weeps over the world. He cries over Carrie. He agonizes over Apex. He mourns over Morrisville. He's relentless over Raleigh. And we could go on and on and on, right? But the fact is, he's looking down on our friends and on our neighbors that don't know God. Who are chasing after and desiring all these other things. Trying to fill up the void that's in their heart that can only be filled by Jesus Christ. And his heart is broken for them. He was passionate for the lost. We see another piece. He had a passion for his father's house. Skip down to verse 45, Luke 19. And he, again, Jesus, entered the temple right after this, and he began to drive those who sold, drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Talk about righteous anger and somebody getting upset for a great cause. This is the vision of it right here. In another uh, parallel account, it talks about when Jesus cleansed the temple and he actually had a whip. This was Indiana Jones coming into the temple, all right? We're not saying that he actually whipped people, because that would probably be assault and battery and would probably go over the line to sin. And we know that Jesus didn't sin. But man, there was a, there was a holy havoc that he was wreaking on that temple. And he was whipping things and he was turning over tables and he was kicking buckets full of money and it was complete mayhem and he was right at the center of it with righteous passion for his father's house. I want you to think about that for a minute. Because he said, you've made, it is written, um, my house shall be called a house of prayer but you've made it a den of thieves. Jesus was so in love with his father and in love with worship and valued prayer and valued what happened in the temple when done with a pure heart that it was said, zeal for your house will consume me. In one of the parallel passages of the gospel. Let me ask you this. Could somebody say that about you? Now I'm not talking about our friends who are visiting and maybe people that are not yet convinced and wouldn't call themselves Christians yet. I'm not talking to you guys. 
you guys, thank you for coming. You are welcome here. But I'm talking about people that have said, yep, I belong to God. Yep, I'm buying in. Yep, my heart belongs to Jesus. I'm a disciple of Jesus. Could you be accused of having a zeal for God's house that consumes you? As you think about the things that you desire and the things that you're passionate about, is God's house and worship and prayer and sitting under the word, is that one of them? Man, I think about Psalm 84, what David said, you know. How lovely is your dwelling place, oh God. Man, David says, if I, I wish I could just be a tiny little birdie and kind of make my nest up there in the temple just so I could be close to the worship and the sacrifice in the prayers because I love God that much. He exemplified passion for the presence of God and for the people of God and for the purposes of God. He was a pattern for our passion. So I guess as we think about Palm Sunday and really the first couple of days um, of Passion Week here, Saturday and Sunday and tomorrow, that's when all of these things took place. As we think about that, I want you to just dwell on that idea of the two things that Jesus exemplified there. Peace and passion. And I want you to honestly think about what the opposite of those two things are. Because when we talk about peace, the opposite of that is anxiety. And maybe for you here this morning, your, your life wouldn't be exemplified as Jesus being your Prince of Peace because there's so many fears and so many questions and so many anxious thoughts running through your mind and, and, and impacting your heart. That you would be more marked by anxiety and anguish than by peace. And what about the opposite of passion? That would be apathy, inactivity, boredom. Maybe for you as you think about that passion that Jesus had for the lost people. Maybe for you it's like, man, I don't really care that much about my neighbors. I don't even care to know their names. All I know about them is they put out their garbage on Wednesday when it should be Saturday. They do a really bad job parking and they don't take care of their grass. But do you know what I'm saying? Apathetic towards the people that God has placed us next to with the purpose of strategically influencing them and showing them love and being Jesus to them. Are we more marked by having them be background noise? and additional traffic, and longer lines than seeing them the way God sees them, with a broken heart, like sheep without a shepherd. So I guess as we close, you know, when people think about Palm Sunday, they think about that term, Hosanna. Hosanna. And I think, I know for me growing up, I mean, I just pictured that term right there as one that, you know, uh, it's kind of like, hallelujah, like, Hosanna, like, that's the way you kind of picture it, like, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna, Hosanna. But you know what that word actually means? It doesn't mean praise the Lord. It doesn't mean, yay, God, it doesn't mean you're awesome. Hosanna means come save now. 
there's such a dichotomy there because on the one hand they're saying, yep, here comes our king of peace. He's riding on a donkey that represents peace. Here's palm branches and that represents peace. But yet there's an urgency to the word Hosanna. That means I need to be rescued and I need to be rescued now. Many years ago, my oldest daughter was maybe two and a half or three years old, not very far from here. We were at a friend's house, and we were in a pool, and we were having a grand old time. And uh, she got out to kind of dry off a little bit, and I was still kind of hanging out in the, in the shallow end, getting ready to get out. And she had, you know, back in those days, uh, still for many of you, when you got the real little ones, you zip them up in like that absolute Michelin man swimsuit type thing, you know what I'm talking about? That's got so many pads all over it. You know, you look like Cam Newton, uh, you know, as the quarterback with all this protection all around and everywhere. And like there's no possible way they're going to go under the water or be submerged for any amount of time. She was in one of those full body zip up things, right? But then she got out and got dried off. And I think she was naked at the time, if I remember correctly. As little kids oftentimes are and feel a level of freedom and fun when they don't have any clothes for some reason. But anyway, I'm in the shallow end, and she's all the way over here, and had all dried off and getting ready, but before she got her clothes on, she runs out, and she's like, yeah, Dad, look at me, and jumps into the deep end. Not even connecting that, yeah, before we had all this safety measures going on, and now there's nothing, literally nothing. So, of course, my wife screams, and I start, you know, swimming over there as fast as I can, because she is going down and can't swim, and can't you know, get air in her lungs. And that was like the worst five seconds of our lives. But we rescued her and picked her up and she's sputtering and coughing and everything else. But that's the picture of what's going on here. It's hands in the air saying, God, save us now. Rescue us now. And as we think about that term and we think about these two elements I'm asking you, what is your prayer? What would you fill that whole idea of Hosanna with right now? Maybe it's for you. It's God, save me from my anxiety. Save me from my fears. God, I can't control my thoughts. Be the king of peace for me. Let me trust in you and trust in your strength. Let me, let me hide under your wings, oh God. And maybe for some of you, it's passion. It's, oh God, save me from my apathy. Because I don't have a zeal, I don't have a passion for you or for your word or for worship or for corporate gatherings or for prayer. God, save me from my apathy. Give me your passion. I'm going to close with one quote here came up with it just says basically you talk about life you talk about success well we can measure our success by comparing what we are passionate about to what Jesus is passionate about mentally map out those things in your mind and then here you say the things that Jesus was passionate about do they match well I'll tell you what man what better way than on Palm Sunday to get that straightened out. Coming on the day where the very night before there was people gathered and people laughing and people worshiping with Jesus as intimate friends and now walking in together to Jerusalem. It says in that passage in Luke 19 that even the multitude of disciples was rejoicing because of the great things they had seen. 
In other words, they were so excited because, all right, here comes the miracle maker. He's done great things for us. And so we're going to worship him and we're going to welcome him for the stuff that he's going to give us. And then you see where that changes just a few days later because it's, oh no, no more giving stuff, no more healing, no more miracles, no more breaking bread, no more uh, of that. But it's, no, I'm requiring something from you. And in those darkest moments, Jesus in his humanity wanted his friends right there with him. He invited them into those moments. Could you not stay up and pray with me for one hour, he said. So I don't know where all this lands on you here this morning, but Jesus is the king. And that looks differently for a lot of different people. And only God can test your hearts. But I pray that even diving in and unpacking this passage, that man, he would prove to be the, the king of peace for you, and he would be the picture of passion in our lives. May we be like him. Our God and our Father, we just thank you for this example that you've given to us. Lord, we thank you for the details that your word records. Jesus spoke. and God, we just pray that we would have the attitude here even this morning that anything that's going to be untied in our lives is going to be for the purpose of redemption. And Lord, we do pray that you would come save us now. Lord, maybe even for some here, they don't know if they're truly even part of your kingdom or not, or if they're a disciple of yours or not. And God, you are looking down and you are inviting and you are broken for them and you are calling them to yourself. If they would just believe in your son, Jesus Christ, and declare with their mouth that he is Lord, to believe that you raised him from the dead, and in doing so, paid the price for all of our sin and shame. Lord, maybe that's, that's the king that you need to be for them. But God, I thank you for who you are. And Lord, I pray that you would truly break us for what breaks your heart, God. We love you. Come save us now, we pray. In your son's name.